And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome back to the Daily Profcast. Today we're looking at the end of Goblet of Fire. We're done. I know. I'm kind of ready to be done, to be honest. Yeah, it's just, yeah, when you do it, you know, in increments like this, we knew as soon as we finished Prisoner of Azkaban. When did we finish Prisoner of Azkaban? It was a Uh, while ago. Yeah, literally millennia ago. It was a while ago. We were like, oh my gosh, we're going to spend like half a year on Goblet of Fire. And we kind of did. Yeah, but we kind of okay. did. We also took a little break. So like that contributed, but still. And but the, the, the end of this is so good. Right. It is so good. And then I was it just started picking up Order of the Phoenix to start reading that. And it's even bigger. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to be in, in book four and book five land for a long time. Yeah, we so. are stick with us for that but it was a really satisfying ending in some ways though sad it's a lot more dramatic than what we see in the film there's a lot more that happens right and we get i think we just get so much of harry's feelings in the last couple chapters Mm -hmm. and it's such a unique perspective into just his emotional state which we don't really get in the movie too much i don't know i just i I really liked the conclusion to this book yeah me too so remembering where we left off harry got he's back after being in the graveyard he it's right when he lands with the port key and cedric back in the maze for the third task and dumbledore is the first one over to him He's just had this crazy encounter. Voldemort's back, reincarnated. Death Eaters are there to do his back and you know, at his back and call. I mean, when he gets back to sort of the, he gets back to the entrance of the maze and everybody's around him. The fans are kind of cheering and it's so sad and heartbreaking to sort of see his trauma response. Like, He's so happy to be out of the graveyard, but he's so exhausted. He's shocked. And it's like, he's just like trying to get his bearings, trying to get right. And he's, but also out of it. And it's just really sad to think of just a 14 year old boy just going through this, a child. Yeah. Holding the dead body of another child. Right. And I'd probably argue that up until this point, this is probably the most traumatic thing that has happened to Harry. That he remembers, yeah. That he remembers, yeah. And it's, you know, in the film, Daniel Radcliffe is like sobbing on top of Robert Pattinson, like, like, so, like, and Harry's just still in shock. He's not, we are not going to see him really process this, I think, until the next book. Right. He's so, like, mute about it. Like, his yeah. trauma response is to withdraw. Mm-hmm. into himself in a lot of ways it's just really sad so so as you were saying it Dumbledore is the first person sort of to him then Cornelius Fudge shows up Fudge is the first to sort of at least announce that Diggory is dead Cedric's dead yeah he's not he doesn't even announce it he's like telling Dumbledore and then word starts getting around the crowd right and, and yeah it's just so sad and Harry doesn't want to let go of Cedric. Again, just like such obvious trauma response. 
and Dumbledore says, you know, you can't help him. It's over. You have to let him go. Uh, just, it's so crushing. And, and the movie, I think, does a pretty good job with this scene, just getting, like, the emotional, like, punch in your gut. Yeah, when the band, the, the, you get come back and you hear the band, and it is so, like, it's, it, we make fun of that moment when the band is playing, when Cedric and Harry come back, and Cedric's dead. But it's really disturbing, the band starts playing and then they come in and then you know you've got dun, the actor playing Amos you've got the actor who plays Amos Diggory come and do his big that's my son that's my boy which we don't see in the books um, right we don't get a reaction from his parents because what happens is that Mad-Eye Moody or as we know him imposter Moody comes over and basically is like going to take Harry away from the scene he's gonna get him back inside the castle he's injured and Dumbledore sort of says no I want him to stay with me I would prefer if Harry stayed by my side mm-hmm. and imposter Moody's kind of arguing just um, kind of grabs him and walks away in the and commotion. then kind of yeah and there's so much commotion that it sort of like slips by but right and not Harry's that. not like in any state to be evaluating this <laughs> Right, he kind of says, uh, you know, no, Dumbledore said to stay, but then Moody takes him away, and Harry's so out of it. And why wouldn't he trust Moody? Right. There's um, no reason for him not to trust Moody. But this is, you know, Dumbledore is going to cite this in the, you know, coming scenes to say, well, I knew the real Moody would not take Harry, you know, away from my side when I said to keep him there. So this is, he kind of shoots himself in the foot by rushing Harry off so quickly and trying to get him out of the scene. Yeah, he's made a mistake in sort of being Moody. Right. So, So Moody takes Harry away. He starts to, as they're going back up to the castle, ask Harry questions about what happened in, in the graveyard. Mm hmm. And this kind of all goes down differently than it did in the movie. Right. So one of the notes I made is I I think the now this was a brilliant move not only for plot but also for shortening this conversation. The I love the moment in the movie where Brennan Gleason goes in the graveyard where there are others and then Daniel Radcliffe has like takes a second he's like I never said there was a graveyard and that's how we figure out. That's how we figure out that Moody's the imposter. I really love how they did that in the movie. It's a little bit different in the book. So they, so Moody takes him back to his office. And we get and a villainous monologue, essentially. We do, but the first sign, that, well, the first sign that something's wrong is Dumbledore is like, I would prefer if he stayed here and Moody takes him anyway. Second time that we get, sign that we get something is wrong, Harry hears him lock the door. Right. So that's our, that's suspicious as well. Gives him some pepper up potion to try and like get him a little more to get him to come to a little bit from his sort of trauma shell. This kid cannot catch a break. No, this is, it's just so sad because he's really grown to trust Moody. Thinks Dumbledore yeah. trusts Moody, you know, and this is just another adult who lets him down. Well, it doesn't just let him down. He's actively, actively trying to harm, trying to him. murder him. Murder yeah. him. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, but, but, you know, Harry's got to feel, completely betrayed because he's known this imposter the entire year 
And the imposter has done a really good job of gaining Harry's trust, making him think that he cared for him, or at least, you know, wanted to see him do well. And it's just, yeah. Barty's mistake here. So you're right. He goes into this monologue. Do you want to, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, the monologue's interesting because he's really not trying to hide anything from Harry. He's putting it all on the table versus, as you said, the movie where he makes a mistake in what he says. It doesn't align to the story. And Harry's like, wait, I didn't say that, you know? This is the mistake that Voldemort just made because he doesn't think Harry's going to get out of there. Right. And his his biggest mistake is in this sort of like villainous monologue, he starts, we start getting this anger about these like forgiven quote death eaters. His biggest like issue with what has happened in the graveyard is not that Harry got away. It's that Voldemort seemingly forgave these death eaters that didn't have to go to Azkaban like he did. And he's like, well, when I deliver him your dead body, he's going to treat me like a hero. Like right. I'm and going to be the greatest among them. One of the lines I wrote down is, he said, I told you, if there's one thing I hate more than any other, it's a Death Eater that walked free. Yeah, and it's true. That was not a lie. Right. I just thought, I just thought it was so good. Just the call back to that, you know, earlier in the book. And Yeah, and then, you know, you can go back through and be like, when was this a moment where he was trying to be moody? And when was this a moment where he was really showing his cards? That was a moment where he was showing his cards because he, like he is explaining his his biggest source of sort of contempt is not even having gone to Azkaban. It's the fact that these other guys didn't go. It's this it's back to this like sort of Christ like anti Christ like comparison for Voldemort, because, you know, as a Christian, you know, we know in the Bible, it says, take up your cross and follow me. So we were taught that like, suffering like Jesus did is like how, you know, it strengthens your character. You become more like him, blah, blah, blah. And Barty's got this sort of twisted, like religious zealot view of Voldemort. I mean, duh, that's the comparison, but he's like, you know, I suffered for my master and they didn't. Right. I, yeah, it's just, it's wild. And and so he sort of weaves together, he tells Harry the story of how he's duped everyone for the year that it was him who put Harry's name, the goblet of fire under a different school. It was him who's been feeding information to Harry through the other students. Right. And Dobby about how to get past the tasks. He arranged the entire thing in the graveyard. He goes into what happened with Crumb and Barty Crouch senior. He just, you know, he starts, he unravels it. He tells it all. And I guess, like you said, thinking that there's no way Harry is going to leave this night here, this information will likely die with him, mm-hmm. but it does not. <laughs> right. And it's not for Harry's benefit that he's saying this. It's like an arrogant thing. Right. This is his, this is his mistake. If he hadn't started monologuing, he would have completed his task and been done with it because you know, it takes Dumbledore a little time to get there. One of the things that, that Barty Crouch says, and he's, he hasn't like 
come out of the polyjuice potion yet. So he's still, as far as I know, he still looks like Moody at this point. Right, and it says Harry stared at Moody. He didn't just see, he didn't see how this could be. Dumbledore's friend, the famous Auror, the one who had caught so many Death Eaters. It made no sense at all. Right, so at first we think Moody's evil. And right. Work. And Harry's right. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and he's like, especially because everything Harry believes about Dumbledore is that he has excellent judgment of character within people, except for maybe his judgment of Professor Snape. So Harry's confused as to how Dumbledore would let, you know, this person be so close to him and be so close to students at school, but be so evil. And then, you know, the, we see it in the faux glass. There's people kind of approaching. And then the door is kind of crashed down, blasted apart, it says. And there is Albus, Dumbledore, Snape, and McGonagall. Um, you know, Harry describes of... that he sees this like cold fury from Dumbledore that he's never seen before. Yes. So, so this is our first time experiencing like, like even when other bad things have happened in other years, Dumbledore at the end of it has been like very quirky and like sweet. Um, and this is our first time seeing like business pragmatist strategist or Dumbledore who realizes that somebody like made him mess up. Right. I, I liked the different characterization of Dumbledore and like in the movie, this would have been the perfect time to introduce the like angry Dumbledore that we get in that scene. It's like, Gary, did you put your name in the goblet of fire? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this would have been the perfect time for like Michael Gambon to like switch that energy and right. bring it to this scene. But I, I also kind of highlighted that characterization. I thought it was really good. I love that McGonagall goes right up to Harry and her first instinct is to like take him out of the situation and get him safe. And Dumbledore is like, no, he needs to stay. And she's, you know, she just has this like almost maternal thing about it. Absolutely. She's like, he's a boy. He's been through so much. Like he needs to leave. Like he should just be safe somewhere to process literally she's this terrible like tragedy. that with him this whole year and i would argue probably like indirectly his whole life sort of right. felt that way about him um but yeah she wants him to go to the hospital wing and dumbledore's like no he needs to hear this and it's not even you know harry is so concerned with people taking him seriously and like treating him not like a child we're gonna see it way more in the next book but i don't this is not because Dumbledore is like trying to make Harry feel good. Because obviously he's not feeling that great right now. This is not Dumbledore trying to be like, I trust you. This is Dumbledore being like, I need you to know this because I need you to help me piece this all together. Right. It's this very like almost adult to adult sort of. It is. He doesn't wrap Harry in the proverbial bubble wrap, you know, it's. It's right. It's. It's your adult to adult is a good way to phrase it because it's not for Harry's like emotional benefit. It's for the benefit of this, like, again, Dumbledore is big picture long term. It's for the benefit of the outcome of everything. Right. He's playing a long game here. This is, yeah. it, it's not even about just what happened tonight in the graveyard. It's about how this impacts everything, you know, for the rest of the series, for the rest of Harry's life in the grand terms of defeating Voldemort and there's a part in here where as you know Harry and Moody are kind of like going over what happened in the graveyard and, and 
Voldemort being back, there's still something that like Dumbledore had a twinkle in his eye. Yeah, so we're gonna get to there. Right. So bit. it's good, but I, I do like his line. He says he he will stay Minerva because he needs to understand. Understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. He needs to know who has put him through the ordeal he has suffered tonight and why. I thought it was so interesting because basically the entire first half of Deathly Hallows is Harry being like. I do not understand why Dumbledore did this to me. Like, yeah. what do I do and where do I go? And it's not until he gets Snape's memories from the um, right. And I, that I he do, knows. you know, trauma and like the horrors of the night aside, I do think Harry does deserve to hear all this just because he, this whole year, and this is what makes me mad about Dumbledore, this whole year after the suggestion at the beginning of the year when Harry's name was put in the Goblet of Fire where Snape was like, why don't we just like let this play out? And t- or I think it might have been Moody. No, Snape says it. Why don't we? Does he say it in the book too? Yeah. Okay. And he's like, we should let this play out because clearly there's somebody behind this and we need to see where it's going. So they've essentially just like used Harry to understand the plans for the other side, which you can say whether that was good or evil that's up to you guys. Um, it's, it's like you. It's like utility. You know, it's utilitarian. It's, yeah, D- Dumbledore is not letting his feelings get in this, but it's at you know, it's it's at Harry's expense. Clearly, and I'm not going to say I don't think it was hard for Dumbledore. I think Dumbledore is exceptionally fond of Harry. Um, yeah, I don't think he did. there's. I don't think there's no doubt in my mind that Dumbledore likes Harry. He doesn't right. not like him. He's not trying to make him miserable though he is just by function of you know everything that's happening but then we get you know all that to say then now we get this reveal the polyjuice you know Barty crouch has been knocked back and he's knocked out and the polyjuice starts wearing off and harry realizes that this is the man he saw in the pensieve and he recognizes Barty crouch jr this is the big reveal and um, we've been talking about him being Barty Crouch Jr. this whole time in our conversations, but this is the first time Harry and everyone else realizes who this imposter really is. Right. It's, um, it's a big, and it's a huge plot twist. It is a huge plot twist. Yeah. So we know that he's been using Polyjuice Potion to, you know, essentially become <laughs> moody. We kind of get some clarity on, you know, what happened with the trash cans outside of Moody's house. That's, you know, when he was able to kind of start the process, get Moody's hair. Like he's been keeping Moody inside of this magical trunk, keeping him basically barely alive to be able harvest to his harvest hair. his hair, which is Careful gross, guy. but very on brand for Barty Crouch Jr., who has an affinity and love for torture. And we start to just get the story unraveled. We get a little bit more information about Barty Crouch Sr., about how he died. Barty Crouch Jr. killed him and then basically magicked his body into a large bone that he buried. Pumpkin patch. Which is on brand considering what went down with his mother in Azkaban that he essentially traded places with his mother and they left her to die in Azkaban. So um, let's track this whole thing. Cause Winky's there too. Like, yes. And Winky's job was like keeping Barty Crouch Jr. So sort frustrated. of under control and under wraps. Let's track this whole thing. First of all, just before we jump into it again, this is the huge plot twist. 
the my first thought when I read this is the first time my first thought was so wait is Moody dead because he you know he needs him for the hair but can you use like I don't know if you can use the hair of a corpse or not but I'm just grateful that she didn't kill Alistair Moody like she's killed off so many characters I'm just glad she didn't kill Moody and that especially we especially before we really get to know him right 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 so yeah so after he was convicted and put in Azkaban Barty Crouch Jr.'s mother Barty Crouch Sr.'s wife knew she was terminally ill and dying which you know you wonder what the terminal illness is in the wizarding world possibly dragon pox whatever and her like dying wish was for him to take Barty Crouch Jr. out of Azkaban so basically one day on a visit they used Polyjuice Potion to switch bodies. He put, Barty Crouch Sr. put his son under the Imperius Curse to sort of control him. And his mother assumed his place in his prison cell in Azkaban and died shortly thereafter um, and was buried. It's. I think this is an interesting continuation of a theme of, you know, what will mothers do for their children? Oh, yeah. And that's, like the and that's... way a mother's love can conquer so much even if it's for evil or for good you know obviously harry's mother draco's mother yeah we see the ways in which voldemort's mother and snape's mother failed them you know it's very interesting just this like mother son connection that totally and that's a big theme throughout absolutely that was a really that's a really good observation so you know switches with his mom dies in azkaban for him and he's basically just confined to his house like as a secret under the imperious curse all the time with under with Winky sort of supervising him when Barty Crouch Sr. is out of the house. And like, he kind of remains under an invisibility cloak because to the world, he's dead, but that's like not an existence. Right. You know, that's not like a, a life worth living. Just like being under somebody else's control all the time. That's like, it's pretty messed up. But he, we know that Barty Crouch Jr. has a pretty strong will and he's, he starts to resist the Imperius curse. So one day he's with Winky in the house and Bertha Jorkins comes over. Right. And she sees him and confronts, or no, I don't think she has, I don't think she's able to confront Barty Crouch Sr. Because pretty immediately Barty Crouch Jr. puts a memory charm on her and she's very forgetful and wanders off to Albania right right that's when this whole shebang with wormtail and voldemort goes down with bertha jorgens now we have a reason for her being in albania it's because barty crouch jr had to sort of cover his tracks and center there but the moment his father got home he was also able to put him under the imperious curse and escape to basically just in the way that oh wait wait wait, wait. no he didn't escape then he escaped at the quidditch world cup Right. So his father, I think his father comes home and realizes what he's done or his father comes home and is a part of the Bertha Jorkins situation. Possibly. I actually need to go back and look, but while you're looking for that, what happened at the Quidditch World Cup was he, Barty Crouch, or I guess Winky 
begged for Barty Crouch Sr. to like take Barty Crouch Jr. It was Barty Crouch Sr. who put a memory charm on Bertha Jorgens. Oh, but it was too strong. But it was too powerful. He said it damaged her memory permanently. Which is why we hear, like we heard in the beginning of the book that before she wandered off, she was like very flighty and, you know, it was the memory charm kind of gone wrong. Almost like uh, our dear friend Gilderoy Lockhart. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Thank you for, for clearing that up and it was winky who convinces barty crouch senior to take him to the yeah to take him to the world cup because that he says winky says that's what his mother would have wanted for him that a life imprisoned inside the house you know is not a life at all and so he's taken under the invisibility cloak right and he also mentions that he used to love quidditch um this is sort of an interesting reversal of roles because winky we can see is sort of in a position of authority in the crouch household and now it's starting to make a little bit more sense why she is so bereft that she was let go from her position right she you know hermione's been treating winky like and winky is a victim like when barty crouch senior fired winky he was under the imperious curse because that was Barty Crouch Jr. covering his tracks, but, and, you know, and she's also a house elf, you know, slavery, don't love it. In that way, she's a victim, but she's not like a, she's not like Dobby is to the Malfoys. She has like this position of authority and like, she's trusted to hold the biggest secret in the family. Right. So, so, so now we're starting to see that she's not just like, She's not just like this powerless little thing. She had, you know, she had this pretty important task for the Crouches that she was doing. So, so things are starting to make a little more sense why she was so upset. So Barty Crouch Jr., when Harry was up in the box at the Quidditch World Cup, Winky was, quote, saving a seat for Barty Crouch Sr. In that seat that she was, quote, saving, that was actually Barty Crouch Jr. under the invisibility cloak. That was his place to sit. And that was when he took the opportunity to steal Harry's wand. Right. So when the Death Eaters crash the party, he gets mad. He was like, these guys are just showing up and, like, playing around with the muggles. They didn't bother to go look for my master like I did. So I want to scare the crap out of them for not having to you know, suffer like I did. So that's when he steals the wand, goes into the forest, casts the dark mark. To, and, it, and we don't know what happens to Death Eaters after that. They probably leave. They're probably like, oh, oh crap. <laughs> like, yeah, bail. OS. And yeah. Barty Crouch Sr. knows that it's Barty Crouch Jr. who's done this. Obviously, he can put the pieces together that, you know, his son is missing. Winky's like inconsolably confused. They run into the woods and he, I, I think Barty Crouch Jr. is like hiding behind a bush under the invisibility cloak and Barty Crouch Jr. is able to like stun him and subdue him with the, Again. you know, yeah, with the grand objective of like bringing him back to the house and putting him under control. Yes. Yes. I think I said, I think I got that mixed up. I think I said a few minutes ago that he imperious Barty Crouch Sr. in that moment. I got that mixed up. Barty Crouch Sr. Imperious. There's a lot of Barty Crouches and a lot of Imperious thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm getting it all muddled in my head. So, but because Bertha wandered off to Albania and, you know, 
fell prey to Wormtail and Voldemort, Voldemort was able to learn that Barty Crouch Jr. was still alive and out there and like loyal to him or so you know he assumes he's still loyal to him and he's the one who comes to the house voldemort and wormtail come to the crouch household and like basically break him free from his father's imperious curse right yeah so so sad they tortured bertha jorkins so much that it broke through the very powerful memory charm to access mm. all of her memories that would have given them context on, you know, Barty Crouch Jr. and Sr. Just so sad. Voldemort's quite literally the worst. Yeah. And so... Oh, um, my... So, as he's telling this part of the story of Voldemort coming to pick him up, one of the things I highlighted, and it's so creepy, like, just, like, makes me feel icky when I read it, is... Barty Crouch Jr. is saying he needed me. He arrived at our house near midnight. My father answered the door. The smile spread wider over Crouch's face as though recalling the sweetest memory of his entire oh, life. Oh, we didn't mention. He's under Veritas serum at this point. Right, that's why he's That's talking. why he's spilling the beans. I'm sorry. Continue, McKenna. Just creeps me out. Yeah, it's this religious fanaticism. Yeah, it's just like my master. It's like my precious, you know? It's just this like gross, creepy, kind of obsessive, fanatical nastiness. I don't like it at all. So because of their information from Bertha, they all three together hatch this plan to... She she told them about Moody getting hired. She told them about the Triwizard Tournament, all this, and Harry and all this stuff. And so they hatch this plan to sort of body snatch Moody's body and go and go in his place so that Barty Crouch Jr. can be on site at Hogwarts, sort of orchestrating this whole thing behind the scenes. Right. Um, and he says that it, my master, my father was placed under the Imperious Curse by my master. Now my father was the one in prison, the one controlled, and my master forced him to go about his business as usual to act as though nothing was wrong. Right. And Barty, there's this complete lack of remorse or you know love that a son has for a father the, the in the absence of where that is like what where barty crouch jr feels that towards would should feel that towards barty crouch senior he feels that towards voldemort oh yeah Earlier, like he says father. like he's gonna treat me like i'm closer to him than a son yeah like it's- i don't think now i don't think barty crouch senior was a particularly loving like father who spent probably spent a lot of time with his son there's sort of that implication he He was proud but i don't you know he probably worked a lot i don't know that he was home a ton yeah he was just my speculation track so you have to you know before everything went down before it was found that his son was a death eater he was sort of on a one-way ticket towards being the minister of magic so it's definitely very unfortunate when he's talking about you know, Dumbledore asks him, what did Voldemort ask you to do? He asked me whether I was ready to risk everything for him. I was ready. It was my dream, my greatest ambition to serve him, to prove myself to him. <laughs> it's, the, it's the weird religious fanaticism. It's like culty. It's very well, I mean, it's, it's supposed that's supposed to be your inclination. You're right. It makes your skin crawl. I know. And, and then thus hatches the plan 
for you know he impersonates moody but he keeps moody in this trunk and i know that he's had moody all year and he's been like studying him but i stand by the fact that barty crouch jr deserves an oscar for his impersonation of alistair moody yeah it was pretty good I mean, minus a award, few whatever. minor slip-ups it was he's an exceptional good. actor if he had just funneled all that produ- potential into theater right he would make the national theater his home <laughs> So, I mean, without having to just like recite the entire plot, he basically goes on to say, you know, how he kidnapped uh, Alistair Moody, how he subdued him, Wormtail went back to care for barbecue baby Voldemort, Hmm. and he went on to his great posting, his entire life's work, being an undercover Death Eater imposter Moody. And he goes on to kind of say like how he killed his father, what he did with the body, he talks about Harry's map. Right. And Dumbledore goes, what map? I kind of find it surprising that he Dumbledore know. doesn't know about the Marauder's map in his sort of like omniscient, all-knowing knowledge of the school and what goes on in it. <laughs> like, Right. It's just, it's ugly. And it's so creepy. And I think this is why David Tennant did such a, he just embodied like the sick creepiness of Barty Crouch Jr. But like in the Veritaserum chapter, the last line is the insane smile lit his features once more and his Mm -hmm. head drooped onto his shoulder as Winky wailed and sobbed at his side. He's creepy. He is gross. He's just smiling through it. Like, it means nothing to him no that Cedric was killed in the maze, that an innocent boy died. It means nothing to him. So mm-hmm. icky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I find it sort of interesting, just like wrapping up thoughts on this chapter. I find it interesting that basically from when Dumbledore arrives on, we hear nothing from Harry's perspective or thoughts. We are not normally like when, you know, the book is from Harry's perspective and a lot of time we get to be sort of that omnipotent, omniscient. And we get to see, yeah, we get to see things through his eyes. We don't get any perspective from Harry right now. I do think this is partially because his mind is a little bit blank just from everything that's been happening to him tonight. He can only almost process what's happening right in front of him. He can't process it with dialogue. Like, Therefore, no... we're not processing it yet. Right. We're just seeing it as like, wow, this is totally crazy. It's, it's different on your second, third, fourth, 20th reread of this book. But it, your first time you read it, you're just kind of like getting all the information. And it's almost like every line is crazier than the last and you're seeing all the ways in which this kind of big mystery of this book is just wrapping up together. From like the third task on to about here, this is the part of the book where you are glued into the book. You are reading those chapters for hours because there's no way you could put it down and not see what happens next. Yeah, I don't know how you couldn't sit down and finish all three chapters. Like just- And pre you know, and, and like the, the three or four before it too. Right. So- the next chapter 36 is the parting of the ways yeah i wrote my first note in this chapter is i low-key forgot harry was there <laughs> forgot he was sitting in this room hearing this right it, it's just it, well, poor boy yeah so at this point you know they he he tells snape and mcgonagall to sort of keep watch over Brady crouch jr and dumbledore personally takes harry 
away and he's like before i can take you to the hospital wing we have to go to my office and like have a little chat and sirius is there waiting for you i have a lot to say about this chapter not so much about harry but it's me but about sirius because what happens is dumbledore takes him back and he asks harry to relive exactly what happened in the graveyard and Sirius, it, it, you know, Harry says he'd like rather be numb. He doesn't really want to be talking about this. Sirius has got to be reliving a little bit of trauma as well. Knowing yeah. that from Dumbledore's, probably from Dumbledore's, you know, message to him to tell him to come, that Harry was Voldemort's back, first of all. And he almost killed Harry. Like he killed James and Lily. Sirius has got to be like really not okay right now. Yeah. And I think he, sometimes I think Sirius would have been the best father, you know, next to James, like the mm -hmm. best father figure. And there's other times where I'm like, oh, Sirius, bad father advice. Yeah. But in this moment, I think he just steps up in such a lovely way for Harry. I think despite the fact that he, probably most definitely is reliving some level of trauma and he's do we really have to he's pretty stern about it he's like this can wait till morning like don't make him do this right now and i think this is the moment that dumbledore realizes that sirius is going to be a big obstacle for his plan to be able to be like seen through to the end but Dumbledore um, has like such like baller confidence because he, Harry says, Harry felt a rush of gratitude towards Sirius, but Dumbledore took no notice of Sirius's words. He leaned forward to Harry very unwillingly. Harry raised his head and looked into those blue eyes. And, and he's just like, okay, not listening to you. Harry, it's all on you. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Dumbledore is on the whole pretty apathetic towards Sirius. He has been for the past 14 years and he is now. And like I said, I think he's realizing that if Sirius is to remain in the picture, that is going to complicate the end of his plan someday. So not that Dumbledore purposely makes bad things happen to Sirius, although you could argue that he could have done more when Sirius was like going to Azkaban. But Dumbledore is probably aware of the fact that everything bad that happens to Sirius is very convenient for him. Right. I just, I think that it's Dumbledore's game, you know? No, it is. It's, it's Dumbledore versus Tom. And there's so much psychology to why those two just like epically can't stand each other on an entirely different level. And everybody, including Harry, they're pawns. And I think probably now Sirius is starting to you know, Sirius is not stupid. He was very smart. He still is very smart. And I think he's probably becoming more aware of the ways in which Dumbledore is just sort of placing Harry in the worst situations and kind of allowing these terrible things to happen to him. And it's Sirius potentially could be a really big problem, you know, it's, for Dumbledore. It's, it's Sirius's interests lie with Harry's well-being and Dumbledore's interests lie with the well-being of the wizarding world right and those two things are often at odds with each other and I think for Dumbledore it's not that he doesn't love Harry dearly it's that that love cannot cloud his judgment 
versus Sirius can't separate himself. He's emotional. We know that about Sirius. He's a hothead. He's, you know, very easy to anger, easy to jump into a fight. And those are all- Yes, he is a total Enneagram eight. And those are all qualities that Dumbledore kind of doesn't need right now. He needs like calculated, measured decision-making. Um, right. And because that's Sirius why, can't see the big picture. Right. And that's in some ways why Snape but the is big a picture, really good right hand for Dumbledore. Because Snape right. does see the big picture. And right. he's pretty emotionless about Harry. One would argue emotional in the wrong way. <laughs> right. And so it's just all of these really unique personalities sort of all kind of clamoring together and as Harry's telling them kind of the story it says Sirius is sort of like making these noises and he's jolting but his hand does not leave Harry's shoulder and Harry tells them of Wormtail you know cutting his arm with the dagger and Sirius is like angry ripping his shoulder and he like lets out like an exclamation of like I said like Sirius all of this stuff I wish we could read Again, I, there are so many moments in Harry Potter where I wish we could have like a midnight sun where we could read the exact same chapter from a different character's perspective. And I wish we could read this chapter from Sirius's perspective because there's got to be a million, his brain has to be moving at a million miles a minute and just like having flashbacks to 1981 and especially with Wormtail. It's crazy. It's crazy. And he's, you know, I think his sort of tribute to James and Lily is he is trying to advocate for Harry. And again, it's sort of at odds with Dumbledore's needs from right. Harry right it's now. It's almost convenient that Sirius is not going to make it past. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. He would have never let, never let Harry walk into the forest no, alone. That's what I'm saying. Everything bad that happens to Sirius Black is convenient for Dumbledore. Not right. that Dumbledore tries to. Dumbledore didn't try and get Sirius killed. The, he, you can, there, people who say that's you can't argue that but he didn't even try and like, get serious murdered even Lupin sort of understood the place in which Harry played in the grand scheme of things yeah. right like Lupin wasn't you know Sirius would have thrown himself in, in front of a bus for Harry you know if and it I meant think protecting Lup- him I think Lupin would have too but not maybe Oh, that's so hard. I, I was going to say maybe not if Dumbledore said not to, but I don't know. That's really hard because L- Lupin's sort of mature. We've talked about Lupin's like mature grown up decision was that he like totally created boundaries with Harry. Whereas Sirius was like, you're my son now. <laughs> like, like, you're, yeah, like you're my you family are my now. child. And Lupin was like, there's another lifetime where I could have been that way with you. But right now I'm your professor and I, that spirit is going to carry through. That I think there still is like some sort of measured boundaries, and I think he he just gets it in a more Dumbledore perspective rather than a more serious. Right, and it's also I mean I mean if we're talking about Lupin's character, it's also sort of we have to take into consideration that this is also sort of a self-deprecating thing that he does, where he's like you know, I am not good enough and worthy enough to be around this person or close to this person. Therefore, I'm going to withdraw. Like, there's also an element of that, which breaks my heart. But anyway. Harry's talking about Wormtail, you know, cutting cutting his arm. arm. And I just want to read this passage because it is I know what passage you're talking about. Super important. 
He said my blood would make him stronger than if he used someone else's, Harry told Dumbledore. He said the protection my, my mother left me, he'd have it too. And he was right. He could touch me without hurting himself. He touched my face. And for a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. He the knows. next second, Harry was sure he had imagined it. For when Dumbledore had returned to the seat behind the desk, he looked as old and weary as Harry had ever seen him. He knows. Yeah, he knows. He knows that Dumbledore just, or Dumbledore, he knows that Voldemort just royally messed up. Right. It's like he can't show it too much and he can't be too confident. Dumbledore is so good at being measured. Like, so yes. good at it. Yes. And the times where he's not measured, it's like... Terrifying. It is terrifying. And we see that when we get kind of more of a backstory of his whole situation with Gellert Grindelwald and, like, everything went down. We hear a lot more from Aberforth's perspective. And when he's unmeasured in front of, like, other wizards in, like, this particular present day, like, the fight between Voldemort and Dumbledore at the Ministry is probably one of the best scenes in the entire series and it's one epic. of the best visuals of the entire movie. So it's just, it's like crazy. And so he's really good. I think he's developed in his like, you know, 400 years of life. 150. <laughs> How to be more controlled and reined in but i love that just a gleam of something like triumph in dumbledore's eye and voldemort did he really royally messed this up for himself yeah and again it's his arrogance it's because he's so concerned of the pomp and circumstance of it all of the show of it it's so narcissistic like it's so egotistically driven that he just messes this up he messes yeah. it up all his pride the time. is his downfall yeah. yeah. Yes. And then we, you know, the previous chat or two chapters ago, chapter 34 was entitled Priori Incantatum. Which but this is our to... first explanation of what it is in the book. We right. talked about it in the last um, episode, but this is our first time we actually, like, if you're a first time reader, this is the first time you learn about what it is. Right. So as we spoke about when we read that chapter, it's the quote unquote reverse spell effect. So Harry and remember if we call back to Sorcerer's Stone, when Harry gets his wand at Ollivander's and Ollivander says like, oh, very peculiar. I've sold one other wand with the same Phoenix feather. And it's the exact same wand that gave you that scar on your head. And so we kind of, that planted a seed. Like, okay, there's something really weird that's like about these wand yeah there's something connecting the two of them and then in this chapter in the graveyard you know their wands have this like insane connection that it causes all of these sort of bizarre phenomenons to happen that wouldn't normally happen yeah, and they can't and they can't wizard. harm each other and they can't harm each other right and that's because the feather the phoenix tail feather that's in each of their wands is from the same phoenix, which just happened to be from Fox, which I just totally forgot, to be honest. And it I makes also so forgot much sense. That. No, I also forgot that. So, so the core of Harry and Voldemort's wand, the phoenix that uh, like contributed the feathers to those cores is Fox, Dumbledore's pet phoenix. Now I'm wondering, this begs the question, did Dumbledore like 
go out and get Fox as a pet after he learned this? Or like, has Fox always been his pet? And he was just like, oh, here, Ollivander, have these two feathers. Like, what is the situation here? No, it's very, there's a lot of ways to look at it. And I think the more interesting way to examine it is in light of, you know, we know Dumbledore has really spent a lot of his life studying Tom Riddle in the attempts to defeat him. That's definitely going to crank up after this book, but he's been kind of on the study for a long time. And so I could totally see him, you know, going out and procuring Fox to like maybe study like the magical properties of the Phoenix. Right. And the the Dumbledore family is just like, well, that's sort of a Fantastic Beast thing that they say that the Dumbledore family is like really connected with the Phoenix. But Dumbledore's Patronus is also a Phoenix. So Phoenixes are, are like his thing. <laughs> and this is especially, this revelation is especially interesting when we consider what happened in the Chamber of Secrets and how Fox came mm-hmm. to, Fox like blinded the Basilisk and came to Harry's rescue to take him out. And Fox is going to be a big part of, it's, he is a part of Harry's story. It's He's just, but it, now we know in more ways than one because it's, like basically fox who lives inside of his of the two places his feathers went i think we know which wand is his favorite child exactly (laughs) harry starts to talk about how he saw his parents and where my brain is going because this is where my brain always goes is oh my gosh poor sirius you know it says sirius's grip on harry's shoulder was so was now so tight it was painful and then so he sad. puts his face in his hands and he starts to cry. I think Sirius, I think where Sirius is probably feeling a little bit angry right now. And I think, you know, they all thought that Dumbledore, or I keep messing up their names. It's the fact that they have the same amount of syllables. You know, everyone thought that Voldemort was gone after that night in Godric's Hollow in 1981. And I, I don't know that Sirius is... I think Sirius is probably smart enough to understand that Voldemort wasn't really gone, especially with everything that's been happening to Harry this past year. And the fact that, you know, Wormtail went quote, quote, back to his master. But I think he's got to be feeling like everything that he went through and James and Lily dying has got to be for, I think he probably feels like it was all for nothing. Yeah, that was my Voldemort's back. That was my thoughts as well as it's almost like you could imagine in the grieving process a lot of people saying well it's so sad that they died but Voldemort's gone but Voldemort's gone and we can all live freely and you know thanks to their sacrifice right they're like martyrs and we know from again the beginning of the series that there were celebrations and all of these like crazy things that the muggles didn't understand because the wizards were just like crazy celebrating that Voldemort was gone and now Sirius is probably feeling like well we're back to square one And the one thing I promised I could do after James and Lily died was protect their son. And now I don't even know that I can do that. And it's, it has to be very frustrating and angering and everything that Sirius has personally gone through with Wormtail and then Wormtail selling out the Potters. And now (laughs) Wormtail is like taking a dagger into Harry's arm and essentially sealing him to Voldemort for the remainder of Harry slash Voldemort's life. It's just so, it's very sad. I think I've said that a lot, but it's just all very disturbing. It's, it's really my, I mean, clearly, obviously your heart breaks for Harry, 
but for somebody who had to go through and fight the first war and then like you said now be back to square one i think he's just like i think i would have taken still having my friends if i knew that voldemort was just going to still be here anyway right like, i think he's probably pretty just, i don't know that angry is the right word i guess angry i've never experienced anything like this so i don't know what the name for the emotion would be but i just I can imagine, like I said, he's probably feeling like it was all for nothing. And he just lost his friends for nothing. And their sacrifice sure meant nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. So Dumbledore tells Harry, you know, they're going to put him under a sleeping potion and so he can get some peace and kind of almost reset his mind a little bit because he's obviously just experienced like such a intense and high level of trauma. Dumbledore offers Sirius the ability to stay the night with him, which I thought was very sweet. Side note, I could, including what we're about to talk about going into the rest of this chapter and then the final chapter, I would pay so much money for them to put, have put this in the film. All of it. It would have been so good. It would have been so good. They're very good scenes. And I think actually some of the most well-written scenes of the book, but they get down to the hospital wing. The Weasleys, I don't think all the Weasleys, just Mrs. Weasley. Just Bill and there. Fleur, or Bill, Bill and Fleur, Bill and Mrs. Weasley, who were there Mrs. watching Weasley the. Are there. Yeah. And Ron and Hermione. Hermione. Mm-hmm. You know, Dumbledore sort of tells Molly, like, you can stay with him, but you kind of have to back off, which is probably tough yeah. for Molly to hear as the ultimate mama bear of seven children. Yeah. But she agrees, and they. <laughs> I love. <laughs> Madame Pomfrey is like staring at Sirius as the dog and she's like in the world have you brought into my hospital wing and Dumbledore it's just like funny the way they kind of work slight humor I assure you he is extremely well trained Harry and I (laughs) Harry I will wait while you get into bed yeah Um, so Sirius stays with him Harry sees the real Moody kind of recovering in the hospital wing um Mrs. Weasley tucks him into bed, which I think is really sweet and motherly and important. And he drinks the sleeping drought and he's out before, you know, he can even really think about it. And. But not for long. When he wakes up, it's to the sound of shouting and and people are kind of bursting into the hospital wing and it's Fudge and Cornelius Fudge, Prime Minister and Minerva and Dumbledore. And Snape's there as well. And Snape, yeah. And so kind of that having to like rehash everything, Dumbledore kind of explains to Fudge all that he's learned of what's going on and it's like... Well, the shouting has been happening. Hold on. The shouting has been happening because Fudge, quote, didn't feel safe going in and seeing Barty Crouch Jr. So he brought a Dementor with him for protection. And the first thing that the Dementor did when he saw Barty Crouch Jr. laying on the ground was get down and deliver the Dementor's kiss, which means that Barty Crouch Jr. is now a body without a soul who cannot give, who cannot testify before the Wizenkamot. Very convenient. Very convenient. Yeah, it's just Barty Crouch. So, Fudge is the worst. <laughs> Fudge is the worst. And this is, we're about to see just how awful he is in, in the rest of this chapter. So McGonagall shouting at him for having done this and for having brought the Dementor into the castle, all that. And he's like being very condescending to my girl Minerva. 
It's also, and Molly is like about to tell off the minister of magic, her husband's boss for Harry. Right. Um, go her. But he's like, he's my dear woman. And like just being super condescending. Oh, he's towards, the worst. Towards Minerva. And it <sighs> makes me so mad. This Dementor's kiss seemed just like a really bad accident, but it's very convenient and good for Fudge based on what's about to happen next. Right, and it, it supports this insane narrative that he's like concocted about this. So, so Dumbledore tries to explain to Fudge, you know, basically what Harry has testified, what Crouch had testified in front of him, that Voldemort's back, that he's rising to power again. And Fudge, Fudge doesn't is, believe it, or he, he doesn't, doesn't believe, want to it. believe it. He doesn't want to believe it, and he sort he's of sort calls- of. He calls Harry's credibility into question. Yeah, he's he like, says, "Do you like? Do you? Are you really going to believe this kid?" And Harry has this awesome clapback where he looks the Minister of Magic dead in the eye and he goes, "You've been reading Ritter, Rita Skeeter, Mister Fudge." Yeah, and he says, "And what if I have?" And he basically turns to Dumbledore and says, "Like you've been keeping certain facts about Harry very quiet—that he's a parcel mouth, that he has funny turns all over the place." And Dumbledore, you need to listen to reason. I mean, Harry is very sane. The scar hurts because Voldemort is close by. And Harry's like, I could tell you who the Death Eaters are. I saw them. Lucius Malfoy. Like, And the first thing out of Fudge's mouth when Malfoy's me- name is mentioned is, first of all, his name was cleared. Donations to excellent causes. Right. It's just A rich person donating money can't possibly be a nazi mcnair also cleared works for the ministry like it is just terrible and he starts to spin this tale that dumbledore has concocted an elaborate plan to incite panic in order to destabilize his authority and the ministry's authority over the wizarding world he is making this about himself He's making the sort of the fate of the wizarding world and this like all that's at stake. He's making this whole issue about himself and about his job. Right. It's all about him being able to keep his job. And I think Dumbledore tries to become very measured. And he's like, listen, we can fight on the same side, but I'm going to fight this fight if it's with or without you. I'm not giving this up. And Fudge is, well, perhaps I've let you run Hogwarts too autonomously all this time. Like I've never stepped in here and that is just terrible foreshadowing to my girl dolores jane umbridge who's about to come she's not my girl i don't claim her she's terrible yeah and dumbledore says like you know they he says if you accept the fact straight away fudge and take the necessary measures we might still be able to save the situation First and most essential is to remove Azkaban from the control of the Dementors. And Fudge says something about how he sleeps much more soundly in his bed, knowing that the Dementors are patrolling Azkaban. But we know that the Dementors are going to side with Voldemort, and so does Dumbledore. Right, and, and because and he makes a good point. They're not going to remain loyal to you because Voldemort can give them what they biologically want, which is just souls to suck. Like he can give them free reign on that which hopefully you will never be giving them and he's totally he's right and fudge is just sort of like at a loss for words since he's opening and closing his mouth <laughs> and nothing's coming out 
And then he says you need to go to the Giants. Right. He says we need to send envoys to the Giants. And Fudge is like, this is absolutely preposterous. And uh, it's just, it's sad. And Dumbledore's race says you are blinded by the love of the office you hold, Cornelius. You place too much importance and you always have done on the purity of blood. And Fudge is just like, this is insane. And he's backing out of the room and Madame Pomfrey's standing there and she has her hands over her mouth. She can't believe it. And it's a really frustrating scene. And it's like one where you could just imagine this happening in front of you. And it's sad. He's supposed to be the political leader that protects them. And he's nothing. He's a coward. So finally, Snape is like, you don't believe them? Okay, here you go. And this is a good move on Snape's part. This is something, this is, this is when I'm like, okay, Snape really made a good choice to support Dumbledore because he's very loyal to Dumbledore and he's showing that right now in this moment. Right. And what he does, it's a personal risk and a personal embarrassment to himself, but he pulls up his robe and shows the dark mark on his arm. And it's like medium lit up, like <laughs> Voldemort was here, not currently here, but it shows that the dark mark is active and that still does not convince Fudge. Yeah. Insane. There's a mention about how Fudge like does take blood purity into account. And why wouldn't he when he like hangs out with Lucius Malfoy because he's such a good donor and all this stuff. But he's not like, I mean, Fudge isn't somebody who's outright and gung-ho about like trying to eradicate muggles and muggleborns he's just passive he's a blood right. pierce but he's like a passive and like you know that that phrase when good men do nothing that's when evil prevails i butchered that's not verbatim what it is but like or evil triumphs when good men do nothing like Get fudge is just like passive and like nonchalant about like blood purity rhetoric i feel like the way his character comes across in this chapter leads me to believe because we know like you know harry says you've been reading rita skeeter and he's like and what if i have fudge strikes me as a sheeple <laughs> fudge strikes me as somebody who during the first wizarding war you know dumbledore was like quote for lack of a better term like in the trenches of the first wizarding war he had the order of the phoenix he was gathering intel he wasn't like maybe always in the fighting but he was very in the know about intel and you know he had spies so that he could know what was going on with the other side he was very in the know about what was happening the i get the impression that during the first wizarding war when Vol when voldemort was like at the height of his power at that time fudge was somebody who like relied on headlines like he must have not really known the extent of what was going on because i hope that a, you know a decent person would be taking these sort of claims more seriously if they really had known what was going on in that era you know he wasn't minister of magic yet by only by 1981 was he a junior minister in the department of magical accidents and catastrophes like i just i i've it leads me to believe that he must have not been very involved in sort of exactly what was going on in the first war. No, I think he probably rode on the coattails of other people's bravery. Yeah. And that's pretty bad. That's pretty cowardly. Do you think, it, do you, what do you, what house do you think Fudge was? I hate to say it. I hate to say it, but I think he's probably a Slytherin. 
not because he's mean, not because he's the character we don't like, because he's ambitious about his position. Yeah, I there do. There are other think people he... that are ambitious about their position that are great Slytherins. I don't think he's very cunning, though. <laughs> That's true. So we can rule uh, out Ravenclaw um... for sure. Well, cunning is a, and Slytherin. It's a Slytherin. Yeah. Yeah characteristic yeah i don't know i actually see him as a cross between a hufflepuff and a slytherin because mm-hmm. i'm almost like he's very loyal but he's mostly loyal to himself yeah so can you call that loyalty hmm. it's almost like unhealthy versus healthy you know i'm like he could maybe be a really unhealthy hufflepuff and maybe that's just because i'm like i don't really want to claim you into my house yeah already that's true riddle i hate to i hate to just put riddle <laughs> I hate to just have bad characters and be like, they're a Slytherin. Like, I hate that. Well, I will say that in the next book, in terms of Dolores Umbridge, I do think she is a Hufflepuff. I don't think she's a Slytherin at all. I think Slytherin is like a cop-out of... Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um... I just, I don't claim him. I, I don't enjoy him. He's one of my least favorite characters in terms of just like, I really dislike him because I think he's so spineless and so self-centered and self-serving. And I think that's one of the reasons I chose Daniel Craig to portray him in my made-up movie. funny as hell. Because it would at least bring some lightheartedness to the arrogance. Like, I'm thinking of, like, a Knives Out-style Daniel Craig performance where it's, like, at least there could be some ha-has mixed in to just, like, what a buffoon he totally is. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna assign, like, a character in another sort of popular media series to fudge i the first person who came to mind not for casting just for you know character traits is Littlefinger from uh, game of thrones i have Littlefinger casted elsewhere i think i do too but i don't remember where i put him peter gillen yeah i don't remember where i put him but i have him elsewhere as well i i it's not for casting not like the actor i'm talking like the character traits of Littlefinger versus the character traits of fudge yeah I, I would agree. It's just, buff- it's buffoonery. It's like comic buffoonery. I, I just, I don't know. He really bothers me. His book portrayal just upsets me on a different level. And that's why I'm like, at least in my head, I can at least try and make this a little funny. That's, yeah. I do like um, that. Pick. He basically drops Harry's winnings and he leaves. And as soon as he's gone, Dumbledore is like, well, if he's not going to help, we're going to do it ourselves. And he looks to and Molly. he gets right to work. Yeah, he's like, Molly, I'm sure I can count on you and Arthur. And she's like, yeah, of course. Um, and she says Arthur's position at the ministry has always been held back because of his love for muggles. Yeah. And this is, yeah, it is super sad to learn that's the inclination. And then he, Dumbledore sort of closes the door and Sirius is able to transform into his human self and well, so he now he tells he tells mcgonagall oh, to get right, hagrid and madame maxine if she will come so i think we can assume to that that they are gonna have those two be you know on to the giants mm-hmm. he tells uh, madame pomfrey to go find winky who must be in considerable distress he asked dobby to look after winky and then yeah he closes the door and he asks sirius to resume in usual form and molly and snape are shocked first of all molly's like oh my god mass murderer sirius black <laughs> so i guess ron didn't tell her <laughs> it killed me <laughs> do you think she would have started like hitting him with her handbag like 
<laughs> well, I think Molly would have pulled out her. Molly wound. could have pulled a worse yeah. purse, but 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 yeah. And then Snape, I just imagine. I find I'm really glad for this comedic relief because I just imagine Snape seeing this like dog turn into a person, and his mind just flashing back to like being at Hogwarts and a dog running down the hall and like tripping him or like eating his homework or like pooping on his like cloak or some just like like this one black dog and he doesn't know where he comes from just like messing with him while he's at Hogwarts and then having this realization that it's actually Sirius who's an animagus. Well, I definitely animagus. thought that Snape knew before this that Sirius was an animagus. Nope. I, I and when I read his reaction I was like he didn't know. Yeah, he <laughs> Even didn't, after yeah, everything in Prisoner of Azkaban like Dumbledore didn't tell him it just was very yeah I guess not it was kind of surprising to me that he didn't know especially because he knows that right and he was obviously tricked to go down there I just thought he always knew so that was a little bit funny to me no the so that was the the sort of plot hole is that if Snape knew about Sirius being an animagus then he would have been able to figure out how he was getting into the castle like Remus right so Dumbledore f forces them to shake each other's hand. And why this could not have been left in the movie is beyond me. It would have been incredible. Gary Oldman and Alan Rickman just like death stare, but like just reach and they're gripping so hard. And it just oh like reminds you of like when you fight with your sibling and your parent is like, okay. Now, now you have to hug. hug and make up and they are just like no we don't want to <laughs> Dumbledore says I will settle in the short term for a lack of open hostility <laughs> yeah yeah and then yeah. he sends Sirius on a little um errand which Sirius is probably reluctant to leave Harry at this moment but he says well, Sirius it's our first mention of Remus Lupin well I think our second mention in the book <laughs> maybe maybe like second or third yeah and he's like go alert Remus, Mrs. Fig, Mundungus Fletcher. And then he says the old crowd. And I like started doing a happy dance when I was reading this part because he's talking about the Order of the Phoenix or who right. used to be a part of the Order of the Phoenix. And this um, is, I can hear in my head like the Avengers music, like <laughs> they're like assembling the old team back together. Assemble. And Harry's like, but what's going on? And it occurs to me because I've started reading the next book that when Dumbledore says Arabella Fig, Harry has no clue. Like he doesn't connect that to Mrs. Fig of Privet Drive. Exactly. <laughs> Who is and was at the end of the war a member of the Order of the Phoenix. Right. What a queen. And Harry's upset Sirius is leaving. And Sirius says, you'll see me very soon, Harry. I promise you. But I must do what I can. You understand, don't you? And Harry's just, yeah, of course I do. Like, sad. But Lupin. So he's going to go hang out with Remus. Cute right. buddies again. Yeah. Could we have, like, a side series, a chapter, anything about what life at laying low at Lupin's is like? <laughs> you could call it laying low at Lupin's. Um, it's a good alliteration. And then Dumbledore says to Severus, Severus, you know what oh, I must yeah. ask you to do if you are ready, if you are prepared. Snape says, I am. He looks slightly paler than usual and his cold black eyes glittered strangely. Then good luck. So Dumbledore. what is he asking him to do, McKenna? He is asking him to go back to Voldemort. To return yep. to the master. Yep. Which you, you know at the end of that what else he's asking him for. Sad. 
kind of crushes me a little bit. It, you know, it does. Like everybody does gets make to go me, back. It does make me sad for Snape. It it does. Everybody like, gets there are a lot to of go reasons. back to their crew, and Snape's just like sent back to the literal worst person on the planet. Well, right, and it's you know I think are there are a lot of reasons I'm sad for Snape. Not because I think Snape is you know a character who is good or good hearted or deserves a lot of pity a lot of the time, but there are a lot of reasons that he is like that that I can acknowledge. And this does make me very sad for Snape, what he is having to now do. Yeah. And it's very alienating in a way. Totally. Totally. Because he's going to have to keep up like a certain air of measured hostility towards everybody in the order, which to be fair for Snape, probably not that, not that hard. But at the same time, I see Snape as somebody who wants belonging and wants a place in the world and I think with Dumbledore he has that right and in an alternate universe potentially with the order he could have had that you know he could have proved himself and he kind of does ultimately in the end but that comes with death <laughs> which is sad yeah I, I don't know it's just like you know what I must ask you to do and it's just like yeah I know. He's I don't like, want to. This is my continued punishment. But, yeah. <laughs> for the literal yeah. piece of crap that I used to be. Yeah. Well. And could you imagine, like, I just, uh, could you imagine him just, like, rolling back up to Voldemort? Like, hey, what's up? After Voldemort basically told Harry in the, you know, graveyard that, like, there's one who will never come back to me and he must die. Right. And I can see, you know, it says Snape gets a little more pale and he's like, he looks like on edge a little bit. I can see this being for two reasons. One, he knows what this is going to end up, what's going to end up happening because of this. And that's going to play out at the end of Half-Blood Prince. But he's also like, I could very well just be walking to my death right now. Right. Just like rolling up. I don't know, Malfoy Manor and being like, hey, like. And like, and Harry and uh, Barty Crouch Jr. have just like basically monologued the events of the entire evening. And we know Voldemort's like not none too happy with his right. delinquent Death Eaters. Right. So my question is, and this might open up a can of worms that we don't want to turn into a tangent, but like, how much do you think Voldemort knows about Snape defecting to Dumbledore at the end of the first war? Because somebody, you know, Snape told Voldemort the portion of the prophecy, and then all of a sudden, later, the Potters are under the Fidelius charm. So Dumbledore knows about it. So he's like, hey, Snape, did you tell? Like, did you tell that I know? That you know, like, like he's got to have some. Yeah, maybe he's just too heard, arrogant to realize. But he's got to have heard the prophecy. No, I mean, but like, but did you tell that I was? I decided I was going after the Potters. Yeah, but the Longbottoms were also protected. They weren't under. There's no mention of them ever being placed under the Fidelius charm. I think Dumbledore guesses that he's going to go after Harry. Because he's a half-blood and he does end up doing that because Tom Riddle is predictable. But 
I just I don't know like what to what sort extent of a vague Dumbledore yeah what to what extent does Voldemort think that Snape has betrayed him and is part of the reason that he ended up losing his physical form at the end of the first war I just don't know or and I mean Snape's very smart he's there's a way he can probably spin it and I think Voldemort's not going to shunt like shy away from the idea of having another informant in a professor role at Hogwarts. You know, that's very beneficial for him. And everything we know about Voldemort and how him and his followers view Dumbledore is like, oh, what an idiot. Like, we're all so much smarter than that idiot. And so he's probably like, ah, Snape, old friend, here you are back and you have a place at Hogwarts. And now we can really band together against that stupid old idiot. (laughs) Probably. Honestly, that's probably his response. It's just, it's all narcissism that feeds Voldemort. It's ego. Right. So the last chapter is well hold on wait harry decides he's like feels like he wants to cry and i don't think it it says you know when sirius leaves and snape leaves and they're all gone and it's just him and the weasleys and they're all still in shock because if it wasn't as if it wasn't bad enough that he was almost murdered by the man who killed his parents coming back to life after like not being in a human form for 13 or 14 years and then almost getting murdered by who he thought he was his professor who was like really you know protective of him but ended up being an imposter who's been trying to kill him this whole time and then suddenly the minister of magic comes in as if this all wasn't enough i don't know he just he sits down at the end of the night in his bed and he just he says he wants to cry and i don't have we ever seen other than like maybe when he got bitten by the basilisk have we ever seen harry cry no i don't think so i don't think we have a totally um, appropriate moment. Yeah. Does I mean, any to be crying. Boys can cry. Like, Good job for Harry for crying. I mean. Well, no, but he says he doesn't want to. He's like trying not to. And then Mrs. Weasley sits down and hugs him. And he's he says he's never, he can't remember ever being hugged like this. And it was sort of maternal. So sad. So sad. Go Molly, though. Uh, and then Hermione slams on the window. She sees something on the window and slams on it. Which we're about like, to oh, find nothing. out. Yeah. Yeah, so the last chapter is called, is it New Beginnings? The Beginning. The Beginning. So I think we could probably recap this pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. He gets to meet, Harry gets to meet with the Diggories and they thank him for bringing Cedric back. This sort of, I read this and I was like, this sort of makes the beginning of the cursed child a little bit complicated. Right. But but nice that Amos Diggory is not like... A total Jerkosaurus. Right. Thinking that Harry, like, there was any foul play or they're thanking him. They're, like, grateful. Right. And they're obviously grateful that he brought Cedric's body back. Harry tries to give them the winnings that Fudge had given him. They don't want to take it. Um, He goes to see Hagrid. Hagrid makes this lovely comment about, like, how he's just like his dad or his dad would have been really proud of him. That's very sweet. Hagrid is setting off on an adventure. Yeah, he's got a summer job for Dumbledore, top secret. This is our first time. Now, we I sort of said this last book. Prisoner of Azkaban doesn't end on a totally happy note. It ends on a happy note in the way that like Sirius is free. Well, not like free to walk the streets, but like he's not going back to Azkaban. He's not getting his soul sucked out by the mentors. And Wormtail is like still on the run. That's bad. But other than that, the year wraps up 
Okay. Yeah, Harry has family. He gets some truth about what happened to his parents. Yeah, like, like Lupin. What happens to Lupin? That news getting out about Lupin, awful. But like Harry, like at the the end of the year is okay. He learns he has a godfather. It's okay. This is the first year that has ended really badly with just like absolutely no redeeming qualities. Yeah, it's pretty crappy all around. Yeah. Yeah. There is a moment and it's think of just like what is so they kind of have a a big wrap-up session with Dumbledore and all the students in the great hall yeah there's Um, a toast for Cedric yeah they toast Cedric Cho is crying so sad Dumbledore kind of gives a speech and then he He eulogizes him really he says he was a very fine person I sort of teared up at that part yeah, I, this is really done well in the movies as well, but he mm, kind of yeah. goes on to, you know, to talk about how more than ever, it's very important that the students, you know, maintain the friendships that they've made this year, that they stick together. And he tells them that Voldemort has returned. And he says, despite what the ministry wants me to tell you, maybe even what some of your parents want me to tell you, you know, Voldemort's back. And he sort of you know, calls out Harry for what happened in the graveyard in a positive way. It's just sad. It's just sad. I think Dumbledore's hope is that most of the students can like see this and see Harry as like a cause to rally behind. Not because they're rallying behind Harry, but Harry is like the vehicle with which they defeat Voldemort altogether. Now you can say like, "Mm, these are children, like, we don't need child's sh- like soldiers, but they the do sort of coming to their doorstep, whether they like it or Literally. not. Harry realizes that. And that's a lot of, you know, what we're dealing with in the next book. But Dumbledore says every guest in this hall will be welcome back here at any time. Should they wish to come? A lot of these guests are going to come back and help Hogwarts for the battle of Hogwarts. Yeah. Yep. And, and he says something I think is just, as we characterize Voldemort more and more, he says, I see you all once again in the light of Voldemort's return. We are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. It's nice. Dumbledore's good at turning a phrase. He is good at turning a phrase. Then we got, you know, everyone saying goodbye, including everyone from the other schools. They say goodbye to Fleur. They're going to see her again. They say goodbye to Crumb. And he says goodbye to Hermione. And he's probably talking about how she's welcome to visit him. And then there's this moment, and it's some good comic relief. Thank you. Where Ron, like, blurts out as he's walking away. He's been holding it in all year. And he just goes, can I have your autograph? And Victor does. He signs his autograph for him. There's this like juxtaposition of like the sunny, glorious weather as they're getting on the train to go home, even though not, not and nobody's really feeling very sunny or glorious after the event. Right. Well, the except for Draco Malfoy. Right. Oh my gosh. He's scumbag a scumbag of the earth. He's a yeah, he's a total scumbag in this last bit. But he doesn't come back before Hermione reveals why she slammed the window. 
Right, so we learned, as we discussed in previous chapters, that Rita Skeeter is an animagus. She's an unregistered animagus. She turns into beetle form, and she uses that to help her get a scoop. Um, we know this because there was a water beetle in Hermione's hair. There was a beetle on the window during the divination class where Harry kind of had a fit. Yeah, this beetle has been around. It's been a common thread through the story. And I love that Hermione has her in a glass jar. Hermione's a legend. Hermione's like, I'm going to take this woman that's been terrorizing us and, and capture her when she's a bug and stick her in a jar. Legend. And as she's kind of Probably, telling like, this story. I can see how this could have problems going down the line, but like legend. Right. She goes on to say that Malfoy knew the entire time all of the Slytherins did. They've been feeding her terrible stories. And as she's kind of narrowing down the story, the compartment door slides open and there is Draco Malfoy and Crab and Goyle. And, you know, they're looking really pleased with themselves. And Harry's just, he's just not even interested. He's just he's, like, Get this out. is, well, this is different now. Before it was just like schoolyard bullying. And now it's like, I know that your fathers were like actively participating in trying to murder me. I was there. I saw it's not schoolyard bullying anymore. It's not exchanging insults. It's like Harry's like, I don't want to see your face. I know who you're like, I've had suspicions as to who your family has been, but I know now. And this is, I'm not ready to put up with you're teasing anymore draco is the worst he's like but he doesn't care he's still there to tease he's like i told you day one that you shouldn't hang around with people like these you picked the wrong sort and it's like well if he picked your sort if harry had been like yes let's be besties i don't think it really would have you know saved him in this occasion he just would have been closer to voldemort like where voldemort wanted him and then draco says probably the worst thing he has ever said he said well it's too late now potter they'll be the first to go now that the dark lord's back mudbloods and muggle lovers first well second diggory was the first and harry they all stand up at the same time and curse all of them they like all stand up and there's like a flurry of spells and then draco and crab and goyle are on the floor and they're all holding their wands out not only that fred and george were down the hall and they had their wands out too they also cursed them i love george used jelly legs <laughs> george used the jelly legs jinx and somebody used like the boils like a boils vernaculus or whatever it's yeah, called. yeah and then suddenly like somebody sprouting tentacles on their face he's like i don't oh think those two gosh. spells were supposed to mix but whatever George and Fred tell them that it was Ludo Bagman that they were trying to blackmail, that he's just like really in deep with gambling debt and just owes the goblins like a ton of money. And Fred and George. And Fred and George, right. Which is, you know, sad. But then Harry kind of, he pulls them aside before as they're getting off King's Cross and, you know, he's about to go back and reunite with the Dursleys and all these are going home. And he gives them his entire earnings from the Triwizard Tournament. Galleons. Yeah. And he says, I don't want it and I don't need it, but I could use with a few laughs. We all could do with a few laughs. I've got a feeling we're going to need them more than usual before long. So timely, because I think basically Fred and George's ridiculous inventions is what gets the entire school through the Dolores Umbridge reign. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's very timely. 
So he says, like, take this and start developing your joke shop and, and stuff. And they don't, you know, we don't see what Weasley's Wizard Weasley's sort of come to fruition as a storefront until two books from now but and harry oh, yeah, says something right. like i'm not sure your mother wants you joining the ministry of magic anymore yeah that's true so that's good for fred and george bad for their relationship with percy though but we'll talk about that and um, the last line is so poignant go for it as hagrid had said what would come and he would have to meet it when it did yeah and that's Goblet of Fire. Oh, there's one more thing at the end before that. JK, the author, like, threw a bone to the Hermione shippers and was like, Hermione kissed him on the cheek, which is something she's never done before, which is like, I mean, friends kiss each other on the cheek all the time. And like, they're growing into an age where that's going to become more normal for like, friends to kiss each other on the cheek. But it just, it just feels like she threw a bone to the people that are like, Harry and Hermione! Um... Yeah, it was good. Good ending to the book. I can't believe we're finally done. Crazy. Yeah, me neither. So I, I, you know what? I appreciate this book a lot more now than before I started it. It always felt sort of like the awkward middle piece, mm-hmm. right? Like a weird it bridge sort of that we it's had across. Like, it is sort of the weird bridge, like. But it's the, important bridge, right? But it's like you know the first three sort of go together, and then the the last three sort of go together, and this is the weird bridge. You're right. You've said that before. But I think we've sort of set we've set things up really nicely for the next for the ending of the series, really, which is funny to think that the ending is here because we have three more giant books to get through. But I'm really I, I did start Order of the Phoenix already and I'm just really loving like every word I'm just hanging on and I'm having to like put the book down and like tell myself like only four chapters at a time. I, I will admit when I started Order of the Phoenix as a kid, I was like not very into it. And now that I'm like a mega nerd about the first Wizarding War and like the Marauders like going into the First Order of the Phoenix and like that whole group, I think I'm just really excited to like rediscover the book. Yeah, I kind of picked it up and I was like, you just have to get through it to get to Half-Blood Prince, your Mm -hmm. most beloved of the series. And then as I started reading, I was like, oh it's good here (laughs) this book it feels so much more adult which I really appreciate yeah so I guess in concluding thoughts who was your favorite character of the book oh man who really took it home for you (sighs) this is really this is a hot take this is controversial I'm gonna say imposter moody I'm just impressed I'm impressed by Barty Crouch's performance. He fooled everybody. He fooled Dumbledore. That's impressive. Is he good? No. Do I, am I like glad he's not around anymore? Yeah. But I'm, I just, you know, the way his like arc played out and like how he tricked everybody was very interesting and, and engaging. How about for you? Yeah, I'm probably a little bit cliche. I'm going to go with Cedric. Oh, Cedric. And I think because Cedric showed just unmeasurable amounts of bravery and courage, I think he was loyal and true and sweet. And he he was just like, we got an American, an all-American type hero, you know, but like. Not American. (laughs) Exactly. But like that sort of like archetype of like the boy next door kind of just so so great and I think more than anything Cedric's life and his death 
taught us a lot about friendship and about sticking together in hard times, seeing how Harry and Cedric will sacrifice for each other is really beautiful. And it's going to be a really important part of the next book and just the way that they keep Cedric's memory alive yep. in acting the way that he would have acted. And I left this book just feeling so sad for a boy's life that could have been so much. And I think he would have totally been part of Dumbledore's army. And I think he would have been teaching all the first years, you know, how to hex and curse and do defensive spells. And I think he would have been at the Battle of Hogwarts. I just think he was a really good kid. And it's sad that his life was robbed. So yeah, up to Cedric Diggory. Absolutely. Rest in peace, Cedric. If you could have lived out any scene from the book, what would you have chosen? Ah, that's so hard. Oh, man. Like, I feel like the obvious is there. It's a character. Like, you're just like a little witch going to school. Like, the obvious is what? You feel like the obvious is what? The Yule Ball. Oh, yeah. The Yule Ball would have been fun. I was honestly going to say, like, just witnessing in front of me chapter 36 with like fudge and Sirius and snape i just i don't know i just i love that chapter but i also love the chapter where harry gets caught on the trick step and like just the 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 games that and everyone dancing around each other when like he was going to find out if like barty crouch was in snape's office and then moody's on the stairs and filch is on the snares and snape's on the stairs either one of those two would be mine although the yule ball would have been very fun is the yule ball yours no i don't the yule ball would be very fun i feel like that's a quite obvious answer i was actually going to also say chapter 36 like if i could just be like madame pomfrey on the side just like seeing it all go down that would have been really just epic yep i'm just seeing like dumbledore take the decisive lead and just like order everybody into their assignments and it's like okay the order's back like yep it's game time we're on yep absolutely yeah so the next time you will hear from us we will be doing an episode on the film we're both going to rewatch the film hopefully together but if schedules can't line up we will watch it separately and then reconvene and sort of discuss the film a little bit some differences and then our one of our favorite things we get to do is we recast the film of each book for 2021 so we are going to recast the characters we have not met yet like ludo bagman like Bertie crouch senior junior mad eye moody but with actors that could conceivably play those roles in or in our opinion from 2021 yeah i'm really excited it's one of yeah. the best and then we take it to instagram and let you guys vote we have a little friendly competitive showdown Yes, I think I need to go look at the scores. I think you're up to two books and I have one, but I'll go look. I actually think it's the opposite. I think I might oh, have one and you might have two. We okay, have to go I'll, look, I think. I'll go look at it and, and update it. But And then following that, we hope to have a little debrief episode with a special guest. So stay tuned to hear who that is. And, and then we will be completely wrapping up Goblet of Fire and moving on to Order of the Phoenix. Right, and we're going to be in the Order of the Phoenix like probably through the rest of the year. So, <laughs> so sit tight, everybody. You're really long. Hang on Maybe we'll pants. throw some fu- other fun episodes like in the middle of all of that. Yeah. It's, it's a very yeah. dense, hefty, sad 
chunky. We just passed the anniversary of the day of the Battle of the Department of Mysteries, which we lose my favorite, my favorite boy, Series Black. I know. It's sad. They're going to start dropping like flies. Oh, yeah. They, they, literally, they are. In a happy note, I have really good fun movie facts for Goblet of Fire that I've been oh, storing up for months. Oh, I next week. Yeah, oh, so, so I got, like, books of facts. Oh, so exciting. Okay, well, we'll see you guys for the film episode. See you for the film episode. Thanks for listening. Toodles. Thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Podcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.